Hello there, and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. Now, today's guest is a Tyrone man who achieved one of the greatest ever sporting victories in winning the World Snooker title back in 1985. Now a commentator with the BBC. It's a pleasure to welcome Dennis Taylor. So, Dennis, what was life like growing up in Coal Island in the 1950s? Yeah, well, it was. Uh, there was all sorts going on. I was into... Um played a lot of Gaelic football. I also was going to dances, believe it or not, at quite an early age. And uh, uh, I suppose that took up most of the time days back in Coal Island was uh, either the, the football or, uh, you know, heading off to the dances at the weekend. So uh, we had an awful lot of fun. And in those days, it was when people used to congregate around a jukebox in the uh, local cafe. There was two cafes in Coal Island and... Uh, we used to alternate between both of them. So uh, very, very happy memories. And, and that's why the, the three songs that I eventually um, uh, picked, uh, Des, were, were just, you know, with this lockdown and the way things are, you've got a lot of time to reminisce. So mm. um, I was thinking back to my uh, days at home. I left uh, Cold Island when I was 17. And, uh, you know, these three songs wouldn't be my three favourite songs, sure. but the three songs that mean a lot to me. First one is Johnny Mathis and Misty. How, what does that remind you of? Well, I used to, uh, I took over. There was the Cullen brothers that used to sell ice cream in the picture house. There was three of them. And then <laughs> the, I took over from them. I was only 12 or 13. And you used to sell ice cream in the, well, we called it a picture house. It was a cinema. Yeah. Maybe held 100 people. And I used to walk around with my little tray and white coat selling ice cream while the picture was on. But in between or at the beginning, they used to play music. And uh, one of the songs that they, they always used to play was, uh, was Johnny Mathis. And uh, little did I, in my wildest dreams, think that over 40 years later, I'd be sitting in a buggy having a game of golf with Johnny Mathis at Mayor Golf Club in near Manchester. <laughs> and I just couldn't believe it when I was uh, playing golf with him because he was one of my favourite singers when I was growing up. And uh, that was the... Uh, and the song, if you want to tell me, the, the song yeah. that they used to play in the picture house all the time. I mean, he had some wonderful hits, but the one that they used to play a lot was Misty. So it means an awful lot to me, that song. And tell me, did little 12-year-old Dennis, when you'd be walking around the cinema, would you be seeing courting couples and whatever? There was three... Um, they were called the tip-up seats. They were the hard <laughs> seats. And then there was three rows of soft seats. And the back row, uh, yeah, sometimes you used to jump up and have a little <laughs> peep over the back to see if someone was having a snog there. Or um, uh, Jer Jerry uh, Shields, who was the manager of the hotel, if, if there was anything snogging going on, he'd shine the torch <laughs> on them. So that put an end, put an end to that. But uh, very, very happy memories in that. And funny enough, uh, Des, I've got the actual tray that I carried round the picture house. Uh, someone had brought it on to This Is Your Life. I think it was Barry Cullen brought it over and it was the actual tray that we used all those years ago to sell the ice cream out of. You didn't earn a fortune, I'm sure. 
On, it was, was very little, but it was enough to let me go and have a few games of snooker up in uh, Jim Joe Gervin's Hall, um, uh, which it used to cost me quite a bit of money in the early days. But I learned very quickly how to beat players, and then you'd get your uh, you'd get your snooker for free then. Okay, well listen, let's hear Johnny Mathis and Misty. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio One. That's Johnny Mathis there, the choice of today's guest, former world snooker champion, Dennis Taylor. So what age were you when you actually started playing snooker, Dennis? Uh, about eight or nine uh, days. And uh, I, my brother played a bit, but there was uh, Jim Joe Gervin's, uh, the old club, there was only two tables in it. It was next to the police station going up Plater's Hill you know, in Coal Island. And I was going up one day up the hill and the door opened and I happened to get a glance in and seen these snooker balls whizzing around. Didn't know what they were then on the green bays and it absolutely fascinated me. And I asked my brothers any chance I could get in to watch the uh, the grown-ups. There was no membership or no alcohol. It was just Jim Joe Gervin that owned the club. And they said I could sit in and watch the older players playing as long as I was a good little boy and that's what I was. And I held the rest for them. If they needed the rest, I would hand it to them. And then eventually they let me have a few shots and I used to have a lemonade box that uh, I would slide under the table <laughs> and I would pull it out and stand on it so that I could make the proper bridge. And uh, uh, by the time I'd got to 14 days, I was the best at billiards and snooker in, uh, in, in uh, Coal Island. That's still a long way from the world you were heading into. Um, you left at 17. Had you any interest in doing in following any career, Dennis, other than snooker? No, I went over to my aunts. I had four aunts that were in Darwin near Blackburn and I went over to stay with them. I um, just went over purely to work, didn't bring a snooker cue with me. And I did all sorts of jobs when I first arrived in uh, England and, and then including to earn a few quid, I uh, was working 12-hour shifts in a paper mill seven days a week. That was just before I was 18. And uh, the money was pretty good. Um, and I did that for nearly two years and saved uh, saved quite a bit of money. And, and in fact, went back home for six months and then returned to England again. So I did a variety of jobs and uh, I was getting better at the snooker. Um, didn't realise how good it was until I played the local players in, um, you know, the, in Blackburn. I yeah. mean, Lancashire was a hotbed of snooker. So I improved um, quite rapidly. Turning professional. Was that an easy thing to do or did it just gradually happen? Well, it gradually sort of happened because I took a job uh, then in a snooker club. I was managing a snooker club. I'd work one week and then be off the next week. You know, there were long hours, yeah. but at least I could practice while I was there. And then also, if you did manage to, you were thinking of turning professional, get the odd exhibition. And at that stage, I was practicing with Alex, Alex Higgins. Had, I'd met Alex when we were both 18. He came up to Coal Island to play an exhibition against me. He'd won the All-Ireland snooker. I'd won the uh, British Billiards uh, Junior Championship. So we got together then. That was the first time I met Alex. So he finished up coming over to Blackburn where I was based. And we practised uh, quite a lot, played hundreds upon hundreds of frames together, along with uh, Jim Meadowcroft, who uh, was a great player mm -hmm. and finished up commentating for the BBC, sadly no longer with us, Jimmy. Yeah, remember him well. But, but Dennis, could you make money at that stage? Not in the early days. You, you didn't sort of make money. I mean, I remember sort of packing the job up in the snooker club at £200 in the bank, two children, and paid my own way to go to Canada to play in the Canadian Masters. 
and I was very fortunate. I took a big risk. I got to the final. I beat Alex uh, in the semi-final. Lost to Cliff Thorburn on a deciding frame in the final. But I, I had done something out there. I'd made a continuous break of 349 without missing when we were doing an exhibition. It was, it was just I cleared the table wow. and then I had to break off. Fluked one, made another century and then made a... So it was 349 wow. without missing. And that got me a bit of publicity, a lot of publicity. And I got invited into Pop Black. So Which was the TV programme, just sorry, oh, to remind our listeners, yeah. Pop, Pop Black was the game, the, the programme that made the game of snooker. I always say there's four things. Pop Black, Alex Higgins, John Spencer, Ray Reardon did a tremendous amount for the game of snooker. And I got to the final of that Pop Black in 1974, uh, 75. And of course then you could start advertising for exhibitions because people had seen you on TV. So you could then get... Yeah, you could get up to 15 quid a night, maybe 20 quid a night for doing a show. So that's how it all sort of started. And and you're, that's now making a living. Uh, you were able to be full-time and... Yeah, yeah. I mean, until you... I suppose um, I did that and then I took a big... I also paid my own way to go to Australia to play in the World Championship. They moved it there. Eddie Charlton took it to Australia in 1975, got to the semi-final. Uh, it, funny enough, it was a year that Alex and myself nearly met in the final. He lost to Ray Reardon in the semi-final that year in Australia and I lost to uh, Eddie Charlton. But uh, you were starting to get your, your name then. And of course, when the Crucible came along in 1977, uh, um, I got to the semi-final that year as well. Mm. You were really starting to, um, you know get your name around and you could play exhibitions. So that's how you made your living, going along to play exhibitions in clubs or you would go and I was fortunate to do the holiday camps. I used to do, uh, I used to do eight holiday camps in, was it four or five days? So that, uh, that pulled the uh, income in for you. You had an advantage though, Dennis, in that you had a, a warm personality, which makes it easier. You, can, you were always so well able to engage with, with, with people there. I'd, I'd imagine it's tougher for a guy who's shy and quiet. Well, do you know the amazing thing about it is when I moved to England when I was 17, my aunts, I was the shyest little boy that had ever come out of Ireland. I was, uh, you wouldn't believe it. And my aunts used to say they could not believe that I finished up playing snooker and telling jokes on television. So uh, uh, it, it, it all come out probably my upbringing in Coal Island because that place was full of characters. So I had a lot of... Th- a lot of stuff to think about, and I suppose that was all coming out. And uh, and I took a, a leaf out of Jackie Ray, who was a, an Irish professional champion. Never told jokes, but he used to be was very funny with the crowds. And I remember thinking, I've got to do something different. And I thought, if I miss a trick shot, try telling a joke, any little joke. Yeah. And that's how it started. And I built up a, a sort of a whole routine out of uh, with with a lot of experience. So I was the first player to tell an actual joke. Now you've got, you know, you've got a good few players that uh, put on quite a, a good show, including the darling of Dublin. He's not bad at telling the old Irish <laughs> gag here yeah. and there. Yeah. Ken Doherty. Yeah, indeed. Well, so things are going well for you and you reached your first world final in, in 79. Yeah, that was a big disappointment because I'd been to the semi-final in Australia, the semi-final at the Crucible. Uh, I thought my time was 1979 because with my poor eyesight, I used to take my glasses off to play. And then in 79, I got a pair of special contact lens 
uh, which I managed to be able to use even with the bad astigmatisms I had. And I thought this was unbelievable because I beat Steve Davis that year with the, these contact lens. And then I beat the great Ray Reardon, six times champion, and thought I was going to be world champion that year. Led Terry Griffiths 15-13. And uh, he come back on the final day and outplayed me on the final day. So um, I had to wait then another six years. But by that time, I had the big uh, upside down glasses because I couldn't get on with the contact lens. So uh, all down to Jack Carnham, who was a BBC commentator and a professional whose family business was making spectacle frames. So he made those glasses for me by hand. He said, you could get them made in, in a couple of hours in a shop. I said, I want you to make them, Jack. And he uh, made those uh, glasses that I probably wouldn't have won the world championship without. Well, we'll chat in a moment about, about that extraordinary world championship and, and the comeback. But your second musical choice is the great Joe Dolan. Yeah, well, Joe used to come up to um, up to Coal Island. Uh, we used to have, I, I don't know if they did them down in the south. You had a carnival. The parish would, would take over the football field and uh, they would put a marquee up. And for two weeks, you, you would have a carnival and there would all the show bands would come and play in the marquee. Mm -hmm. And I used to do the cloakroom. I was allowed out of school when I was 12 or 13 to do the cloakroom. So you had the cloakroom, men's cloakroom, the right, uh, women's to the left and the band in the middle. So you could stand on a table and you were virtually, you were in the band more or less. And uh, <laughs> we used to help all the bands in with their gear and that. And that's when I first met uh, Joe Dolan. Uh, once again, didn't realise that, uh, that we'd be go, you know, become good friends. And uh, it was a, a fabulous surprise for me when they did This Is Your Life. And uh, sure enough, because uh, you have no idea who's coming on, who came on, only Joe, uh, Joe Dolan, Ben, and a few of the boys out of the Drifters. And they were playing the song uh, that uh, he had a lot of hits uh, but this was the song that, that they were playing whenever they, they come on, This Is Your Life For Me. That Saturday night at the movies That's from Joe the one, Dolan. Saturday night yeah. at the movies. Uh, yeah, always loved Joe singing that. And uh, as I say, he was an absolute gentleman and the things he did for charity and that. And in fact, we called, we were doing some shows last year and I called to see his brother Ben, who's mm -hmm. still there in Mullingar. Yeah. And in fact, I came over with Frank Garson to Joe Dolan's uh, funeral. It was, uh, it was unbelievable there to see the turnout for him, but he deserved it. Did you play golf with him as well? Didn't manage to play no. actual golf with uh, Joe, but uh, he did come along. I had a big charity golf day up in Cookstown and Joe came all the way up and played in it and uh, sang a, a couple of numbers in the evening at, at the dinner with a, you know, with a few of the comedians over from, uh, from the UK. So uh, he was always a, always a gentleman with Joe. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Joe Dolan there, Saturday night at the movies, the choice of today's guest, former World Snooker champion Dennis Taylor. And let's talk about that uh, World Snooker final when he became champion. 1985 it was. And for younger listeners, it was quite extraordinary because Dennis was up against Steve Davis, the world number one. But what a disastrous opening first session for you, Dennis. Oh, I thought I wanted the floor to open up in the crucible and to disappear into it. I'd played brilliant throughout. I'd, I'd got through to the final with a session to spare in the quarterfinal, a session to spare in the semi-final. really looking forward to having a, another crack at Steve Davis. I'd had a few good hidings often, but 
I beat him in 79 at the Crucible and the year before he beat me in the semi-final 1984. So when I went 7-0 down, we, we did seven frames in the first session. I thought, what is happening here? But I wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't missing. And he came out in the evening and won the first frame. It was 8-0. Uh, then I managed to get my first frame on the board. And even though he led 9-1, I got that bit of confidence from winning that first frame. And I won the last six frames um, of the first evening's play. So I got myself back to 9-7. And I think Steve was in total shock about that. So uh, Sorry, Dennis. I'm amazed you, yeah. were, you were so calm about that. Just one frame was enough to keep you calm and get back. You were 9-1 down in a world final. Well, I was always having a little chat. There was two fellas next to me I used to sort of relax and chat to, but the other person I was always having a little chat to, um, my mother had passed away suddenly about six months before. I'd just won the, the, the Grand Prix, actually. Mm -hmm. So she was still with me when I got to the Crucible. So she was only 62, died very suddenly. It was, In fact, I didn't even want to play the game of snooker after that. But sure enough, she uh, helped me to win the, the Grand Prix, which was my first ranking event. And I was chatting away to her, so that yeah. helped to keep me calm. Yeah, so so 9-7 now, and you're, you're suddenly right back in the match. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't get past him. Every time I drew level with him, he'd, he'd pull away again. Uh, but then it was uh, it was cat and mouse then. And uh, if we had have known, I mean, they stayed with that final on the final night. They were cancelling programmes on BBC. Yeah. And the audience kept building and building. And, uh, I mean, it was incredible that by the time we started the last frame, which was about eight minutes past 11, there was 18 and a half million people tuned in. That, that uh, was it, the biggest ever audience for BBC Two. Yeah, absolutely. And also the biggest audience on any uh, channel in the UK for, uh, for you know, after midnight. Uh, yeah. There was nothing came anywhere near that for after midnight. So, uh, yeah, it still, still holds a couple of records. And, uh, I mean, Steve and myself, we do, in fact, we do some shows there in, uh, in Ireland with Ken Doherty and that and... <laughs> It's great and when we reminisce about it just to think that we were both involved in that uh, bit of snooker mm. history that uh, is still... Funny enough, they showed it there. Um, they were showing the uh, classic matches. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the people that contacted me and said they were still nervous <laughs> even though they knew the results. So it was well, quite, quite incredible. Well, let me take people through it now, for the younger people now especially. It was first to 18. He went 17-15, isn't that right? Yeah, that's when uh, that's when they, they were getting ready. To, they used to present a big giant check, and they were getting ready to put Steve's name on it behind the commentary box, mm -hmm. and because uh, they thought it was going to be all over, he only needed the one frame, yeah. and uh, they had to head back to the sponsors' lounge because I won the next two frames and levelled it at seventeen all. Wow! So, so that's that's when we started that last frame that I mentioned there about eight minutes past eleven. Forgive me now going back over it again. I know you're asked about it a lot, but it is unique in terms of the comeback and the drama. So it's midnight and Steve Davis is ahead in this deciding frame. He was, he only needed the brown. I think, correct me, what was left on the table? He only needed the brown and there was only brown, blue, pink and black still on the table. Is that correct? That's right. He potted the green and he only needed the brown and the white came down the table and somehow just hit the blue and snookered himself on the brown. Otherwise, it would have been all over. And then when we got to the brown, I had made my mind up. I was just going to have a go at wherever the ball's finished, I was going to take a pot on uh, if it was, you know, any sort of chance at all. And 
Um, I had to pop the last four colours and the brown I potted was one of the best shots I've ever played in my whole career under pressure. And I, I potted a tricky blue and uh, a delicate little pink and then all of a sudden there's just the black left on the table which was on the side cushion about 12 inches from the middle pocket. And I don't know to this day why I, on the way past I kissed the, uh, the little lady on the top of the World Championship trophy. <laughs> I think it was more or less to say, I'm going to win you with this shot or yeah. lose you. And I, I took the double on and uh, the crowd started cheering. I thought, I've, I've done it. And it hit, missed the pocket by fractions. But I was lucky the blank went safe. He went on days to play an unbelievable safety shot. Mm. And I think then I confused Steve because he put the black on the bottom cushion near the uh, balk area where the yellow, green, brown is. And I tried to double it from there up into the corner pocket. Crazy shot to take on and had a go at that and it didn't come off, but uh, I got it safe. And then he made a bit of a mess of his safety shot. And I had the first proper chance to pot the black down past the blue spot, the green spot. And I remember saying, keep everything still and push the queue through mm. in a straight line and you're going to be world champion. You've waited 13 years for this. It was the biggest twitch ever seen at the <laughs> Crucible. <laughs> I missed the black by so far. It nearly come back in and into the pocket I was leaning over. And that's when I thought, all that hard work and it's all, it's all gone. He'll cut the black in and he'll uh, win the world championship for the third time. And Steve, when he talks about it, said as he walked across the crucible floor to cut the black in, he said his legs had gone and his arms had gone. They felt like somebody else's. And under pressure, you hit the type of shot he had too thick and he overcompensated and hit it too thin and left it there. And then that shot that they keep showing time and time after mm -hmm. again was the black that was a lot easier than the one he missed. And... Uh, the relief when that black ball eventually went into that pocket was amazing. That was 13 years of trying to become world champion. It was extraordinary. And, and the aftermath and the celebrations. Well, it was it was incredible, really. And, and I was over, uh, I think uh, Guinness brought me over to do, I was doing some appearances at uh, some of their pubs and different venues. Dennis, and, I, I, was, uh, I was the TV news reporter when you came over a couple uh, of days after for that and you went to Guinness HQ, first of all. I was the reporter for television back are then. Are you kidding, Dennis? Yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's, the welcome you were getting was extraordinary. Like Ireland had come to a standstill after midnight for you. It was, it was quite incredible. And, and funny enough, I think it was a week after, I'd happened to already in the diary at an exhibition to do in the uh, Shank Hill Leisure Centre. So there was a wee altar boy from Coal Island uh, <laughs> going to play at the Shank Hill Leisure Centre. Well, the reception I got there was out of this world. But I think people remembered back to the, the, uh, the 70s and early 70s when things were really bad there. I used to bring some of the professionals over John, um, who used to come over, Terry Griffiths, Steve Davis, Graham Miles, Cliff Thorburn. And we went and played in all, uh, you know, sections of the community and got a great reception. So uh, it was just amazing. But of course, the big one was uh, when I went back to Coal Island. I mean, there was sure. over 30,000 people crammed into Coal Island. I don't know how they You're managed joking. to get that many people into it. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, it was life changing, wasn't it? Literally life changing for you. Yeah, well, the way people react, I mean, it, it, with regards, we, we still lived in the same house afterwards, but the way everybody, um, f you know, felt about it and wanted to have a chat about it and 
you know, even to this day, you get people and people say you must get fed up. Uh, people mention it. You never, ever get fed up <laughs> of that. It was, as I say, even Steve says he'll remember that final more than the six <laughs> that he won. And despite those great days, great times, your third musical choice is also bringing you back to your youth and back to Cold Island again. It brings me right back to that again because we used to have a, a record hop on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, this is pre-disco, way pre-disco, and I don't know what they called them uh, down in Dublin there, but we, we had one on a Sunday afternoon. It was called a record hop, and Finbar Burns was the, the DJ. He was way ahead of his time, Finbar. In fact, he used to know a lot of the show bands and bring them there. So to get to this record hop on a Sunday afternoon, I mean, we were very young. We are only sort of 14, 15 and, you, you know, you had lots of teenagers there. And, uh, of course, in those days, you, you, you either had to dance three slow ones or th three quick ones, and, or, or you needed to be able to jive around Coal Island and, and Dungannon next door to Coal Island. They had some of the best dancers, some of the best jivers, I think, in Ireland from them two small towns. And when we go to the record hop, when this song used to come on, yeah, all the well, the girls would be at one side of the hall, the boys at the other. You, you used to tr make a dash across and get one that could jive just to this record. And I, it always reminds me of this particular song when I hear it, those days when you used to do a bit of jiving in Coal Island. That's a lovely memory. And Dennis Taylor, thank you for sharing your memories with us. It's been great fun. We're going to play out with Dennis Taylor's third choice, Little Richard and Good Golly, Miss Molly. Thank you, Dennis. Thanks very much, Des. All the best to you and all the best to all your listeners. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.